Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be going over a hypothetical round one debate post by myself. It's just a thought experiment. If I was in an audio debate, a live debate about the nature and character of God, what would I say? What would my opening points be? How would I phrase myself? I often think about these things. How do you phrase your initial comments? How do you how do you frame debates? How do you frame positions? What's the best strategy to reaching others? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out tonight to listen to this very interesting debate on this very important topic, the nature and character of God. Now, you're going to hear two different ways of approaching the Bible tonight. The first way, by my opponent, is a very philosophical mindset. He has a systematic theology that works together and, and I'll go ahead and admit that his systematic theology fits together, works well together. That's fine. And he takes this systematic theology, which he is very proud of, and then he tries to look for proofs in the Bible for this. He looks for proof texts to support his philosophical constructs that he puts together. For example, his philosophical construct will have a God that cannot change. He can't change in any detail. He can't react. He can't be different than he was in one point of time than another point in time, he is absolutely immutable. And how do we prove this from the Bible? We pull a proof text like Malachi 3.6, just, just not, not even the whole verse, just the first part of the verse, for I am the Lord, I change not. See, God is absolutely immutable and changes in no respect in any way at any point in time and never has a new thought and never can do anything in time. He is completely motionless, right? Is that, is that what that little phrase, that first part of that verse, is that what it means? The very next verse speaks about God returning to Israel in response to them returning to him. Is that to be ignored now? The very end of this very same chapter with this proof text for God's absolute immutability has Yahweh writing a book so he could recall who not to punish when the time comes. So is that what Malachi 3.6 is about? Absolute immutability in any sense of the word that God cannot change. He cannot act in time. You see how this philosophical approach to the Bible works. First, you start with your theology, then you look to proof texts, and then you ignore context. I appear before you tonight not as a theologian, not as a philosopher, but I'd like you to think of me as a historian. And not just any historian either, a historian with a particular interest in reading comprehension and human communication. How does language work? How do we understand what authors are trying to communicate in their work? How do we identify metaphors? How do we identify hyperboles? And can we take this methodology and can we export it from the Bible and be able to read any other ancient text? That is our true test to if we are treating the Bible with intellectual integrity. Can we use the same rules and apply them to other texts and still get rational results? If not, if not, our entire case for our position on theology is based off of special pleading. Special pleading is a fallacy of logic. It is claimed that there are special rules that apply only to your position. It's using inconsistent standards, and this is very related to the logical fallacy of begging the question, just assuming that you are right without proving that you are right. My opponent's going to argue for absolute omniscience as an attribute of God. And here's a very interesting proof text. Let me read it for you, and you just tell me what you think about this proof text. He that has knowledge of what each one does or will do or has done in days gone by, be it God or a man that does it, I am he. 
So that sounds like absolute omniscience of all past, present, and future, right? Is that this complete omniscience that my opponent is arguing for? One more time, he that has knowledge of what each one does or will do or has done in days gone by, be it God or a man that does it, I am he. You'd be interested to know that this is found in Philemon. Now, not the Philemon that we find in the Bible, but a Greek poet, and this is about Zeus. This is the same Zeus that was born of Kronos, and he has intrigues with the other gods, and he has uh, carnal relations with human women. Right? Th these are the perceptions of Zeus that are relevant at this time in history. And the context actually describes the mechanism how Zeus knows what he does know. It's because he's identified with the air, and the air is omnipresent on Earth. It's everywhere, right? And so everywhere there's air, there's Zeus. And Zeus is able to gather information in real time and understand what's going on. This doesn't preclude intrigues with other gods when the other gods try to trick him. Other gods try to overthrow him. That's not what's being communicated in this phrase. So if you were to come to this text with a negative theology mindset and say, oh, this has to mean absolute omniscience of all things, you would be wrong. The context suggests quite the opposite, that Zeus receives information due to his spatial location. In other words, the immediate context contradicts any notion of this absolute omniscience, absolute foreknowledge. And my opponent, he advocates a very particular type of omniscience. When we're talking about omniscience in this debate, he means something different than each one of you means. What he means is omniscience in which God can never receive information. God's information gathering is not passive. It's an act of omniscience, which is identical with God's essence forever. So if God were to be outside of time and look into time in order to see the future and receive that information, that's not the omniscience that my opponent wants to talk about tonight. If God were to receive information, God would not be immutable. God would not be perfectly simple. God would be not absolutely transcendent. The omniscience that my opponent wants to argue, there's a lot of slights of a word when we're talking about omniscience. He wants to talk about this very particular type of omniscience and see if he proves it from the text. See if he finds a biblical author that endorses this act of omniscience. Instead, you're going to find proof text for omniscience, as people usually use proof text in the Bible. They'll say, from heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all of mankind from his dwelling place and watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. Psalms 33, 13 through 15. Look at this. This is passive knowledge. It describes the mechanism in which Yahweh receives information. He sits in heaven and he watches mankind. And then he considers what they're doing. He's watching them in real time and reacting. This is not the omniscience that my opponent agrees in, believes in. Contextually, when they use this proof text, when this proof text is used for omniscience, contextually, it should be a proof text against their views. This is not the omniscience they want. This is more of omniscience in which God knows every active event on earth. God is passively watching events as they unfold. And interestingly enough, this is the common definition of omniscience in the ancient world. Notice how the Zeus proof text in which Zeus knows everything that was and is and will be, that is him receiving current information and making inferences about what people are going to do by observing their present behavior. This is not about every action, past, present, and future. And it's, it's a hyper overgeneralization because 
Conceivably, Zeus can be overthrown like his father Cronus was in the Greek mythos. And Zeus throughout Homer, throughout Hesod, throughout the poets is described as omniscient, all-seeing. He sees everything. He watches everything. And that doesn't, by default, force him to be infinitely perfect, perfection, immutable, timeless. That's not the concept. You can't just assume those things on from those proof texts. And those proof texts don't mean what they sound like. How the Calvinist, how the negative theologian would use those proof texts, if those proof texts were applied to Yahweh, they'd use it to support their ideas of negative theology, of active omniscience. But contextually, that's not what's being communicated. And we'll have a very interesting thought experiment during the question and answers where I have three different passages, one from the Bible, one outside the Bible about Yahweh, and one outside the Bible about Zeus. And I'll switch the names up so no one knows which one's which without uh, guessing. And then we'll figure out if my opponent can describe the omniscience described in each one of those proof texts. And what this will illustrate, even if he refuses to play along and describe the omniscience in these various proof texts, what this shows is that when he comes to his proof text, he comes with a special reading, one that doesn't fit the context. It's not found in the context. You can't contextually make your point that that's what that proof text means. You have to read your views into the proof text. If you're following along with my argument, this proof texting is very bad biblical scholarship. It's just not biblical scholarship. What it is is it's spiritualism and spiritualizing the text. And then right now I'm going to talk to you about one silly example of proof texting as found in Fishbane's Biblical Myth and Rabbinic Mythmaking, that book. There was a dispute in the past about what the meaning of earthquakes were. And the pagan explanation was lacking and the, the Jews came together with their own proof text to explain earthquakes. One of them said that earthquakes is God clapping his hand. They quoted Ezekiel 21:22 about God clapping his hands together and abating his anger. Another proof text was about this is God groaning. And Ezekiel 5:13 was quoted, I shall abate my fury against them and be calm. And so earthquakes were explained away by proof texting Ezekiel 15:3 about God groaning. Another one was that the earthquakes are God stamping around in the heavens. Jeremiah 25:30 was cited. A shout echoes through the earth like the sound of those who trample the vats. All right, so turning to any one of these proof texts, you can see the context is not about explaining the source, the cause, the sounds of earthquakes. None of the proof texts are about that. Notice how this proof texting starts with some sort of question, premise, a philosophical stance. What's the causes of earthquakes? And then it looks to the text of the Bible to try to find answers by pulling out phrases out of context. Notice especially how superstitious this is, how dismissive of the text this is. This is not historical scholarship on ancient Israelite ideas of earthquakes, is it? Proof texting, then, is starting with your premises and looking for support for those premises, even though the context of your support does not support what you're trying to prove. The verses are not about earthquakes. They just aren't. Context isn't about explaining earthquakes. That's being read into the text. We see very similar processes in place when negative theologians approach the text. They say, we want to find verses about God knowing everything in the future. 
A common citation for this is Isaiah 40 through 48, roughly. And what's that about? It's the trial of the false gods as commonly referred to. So when we approach the context, we have to ask, what's going on here? What's the scenario? Who's writing? To whom are they writing? What are they trying to do with this text? And in the case of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing to the exiles at, in Babylon to try to convince them that Yahweh is God and they should worship Yahweh instead of the false gods. This is a text. This is an advocacy text towards an unbelieving people. The purpose of this is to change their minds, to give them reasonable arguments, to get them to think clearly. And this is a, a proof text that's quoted in support of divine determinism, right? Does the context support that? Divine determinism, everything that happens is by the will of God. No, the text screams against that. It says, listen to these reasonable arguments and then turn and believe. And let's follow the flow of the argumentation here. Isaiah recounts all these great things that God has done for Israel, leading them out of Egypt. That's one of the primary power acts that God has done in the Bible. And he says, who's done all these things? Who is powerful? Yahweh is. And then he compares it to the false gods. And we get Isaiah 41, where he says, present your case to the false gods. Let them bring forth, let the idols bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things that were that we may consider them and know the later end of them or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God. Yes, do good or evil that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. So what's the argument here? A lot of people engaged in negative theology think that this is just like a knowledge test, that God is comparing him to the false gods in terms of knowledge. I just know more than you about the future. But that read, read what's going on here. He says, do stuff. Tell us what you're going to do and then do it. Because guess what? If you tell us what you did after you did it, how do we know that it was you who did it in the first place? The way that you prove that your acts are actually done by you is if you tell us before you do it. He's saying you can't do that. Yahweh does. Yahweh tells his prophets before he does something that he's going to do something so that they know that he's going the one doing it. It's not that he does everything, right? That, that's not the point. But he does do the things that he says he's going to do. And because he tells them, and it's in recorded history, he tells them what he's going to do, and then it happened, they know that he is the true God. He is the powerful God that can accomplish his will. And as a result, they could use that information to understand that he's the God to be worshipped and not these false gods. And you see this theme reiterating throughout this chapter, these sections. It says, declaring end from beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This is 46.10. God's talking about, I declare what I'm going to do and then I do it. 48.3. I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth. I caused them to hear it and suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Notice the process of events. God tells people he's going to do stuff, then he does them, and then the people know that God is powerful because he could do what he says he's going to do. This is not about God doing everything that ever happens ever. This is not about God explaining to everyone every event that ever happens as if every micromanaged thing in the world is part of some divine overplan. That's not the point here. That's not what's going on in the text. Contextually, it's an argument to Israel to get them to change their minds and worship Yahweh. 
And what is this proof text used for? It's used for trying to prove omniscience and a very particular type of omniscience. Normal people think of omniscience as just God knowing everything. But when the negative theologian uses that word, that is not what they mean. They don't mean God just has knowledge of everything that he can have knowledge of. What they do mean is that God has an active, inherent knowledge that's identical to his being. This is knowledge that he doesn't receive from anything. It's, it's not a passive knowledge. He doesn't know it because he sees it from outside of time. Because God can't see. God cannot receive information because that would be a change to his character. When they use these words like omniscience, what they want to do is use this act of omniscience in which this information is eternal, co-eternal with God and identical to his essence. And does, God doesn't receive this information from anywhere. It, there's no outside things to flow into the mind of God. And then they use verses where God says, I declare I'm going to do something and then I do it and then it comes to pass. And that's a proof text for this act of omniscience. This act of omniscience, nowhere described in the text, nowhere defended in the text. And the text suggests completely opposite, that God's knowledge is contingent on his power to make what he wants happen to happen. This knowledge is not inherent in God. He doesn't know it because it's identical to his being. He knows it because he has the power to make it a reality. These are not even eternal declarations. God decides to do new things. In the text that they quote, God says, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to declare a new thing. Because guess what? We need to add new things to this list. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do before I'm going to do it. And so the Calvinist, uh, the negative theologian, they'll take a look at this and say, all this was eternal knowledge from before time began. That's not even a thing because God's outside of time. The text doesn't support that. The text is not about that. The text is about in time, real time determinations. As events unfold, God reveals his ever-changing plans and his accomplishments of those plans. And this is in the context of convincing of very stubborn people to change their mind and start worshiping God. God's not controlling these people's thoughts. God has to reason with them. And here's a spoiler if you've never read the Bible. It doesn't often work that people respond to God. So you see how the proof texting works. They come to the text with their narrative that they want to reinforce. They pull verses out of their context. They make them say different things than what the context says. They ignore the crucial elements of the narrative, which refutes their ideas of how their verses work. And it's just kind of a pigeonholed theology. They kind of force it into place. The ideas in the text don't quite communicate the theology they want to prove, but they're just happy with anything because the Bible doesn't have their ideas, their philosophy, their grand schemes. It doesn't describe them anywhere in the text. It has to be forced upon the text. They're treating the text in the same way that the people who are looking for proof texts about earthquakes, God's clapping causes earthquakes. They're treating the text in that exact same way. Now let's turn to another text. This is a very famous narrative in the Bible. This is in Genesis 6, in which God repents, not that man became wicked. You know, well, that's the standard narrative, that God's watching the world and the world becomes evil. Then he, he punishes the world with a flood. But that's not what happens in Genesis 6, if you read the text. Instead, man becomes wicked, and then God repents, not that man became wicked. He's not sorry for man became wicked. Yeah, that, that, that is an element, and that's inferred, but specifically, God is grieved. God repents of his own actions in making man. God is repentant that he has made man. He wishes that if he could do it all over again, he would not make man. 
That's how the text reads. And Genesis 6-6 is not just a throwaway verse. It is a driving plot point. God is watching human beings. He's watching them become wicked. He changes his mind about having created them. And then he proceeds to undo all of that creation, destroying all flesh. Not only do you have God expressing his remorse, you have the narrator reinforcing that remorse in the very next verse. The resulting character actions are ascribed to those motivations as described and are presented as historical fact. All right, so God repenting of his own action, that is crucial to the plot of this narrative. But this has to be dismissed because if uh, negative theology is correct, if God never changes his mind, if God has uh, exhaustive knowledge of all future events, and in an active sense, remember we already talked about that, this is not even just a passive knowledge. I see the future, therefore I know what's going to happen. This is a knowledge that's inherent in God's being. Knowledge that never flows to God directly. The knowledge has to originate inside of God. If that's all true, this narrative has to be rejected. So what's claimed is that this text is anthropomorphic. It's depicting God in terms of human beings. And Calvin describes this as divine accommodation. God is lisping as you would talk to a baby. People aren't smart enough to understand these grand philosophical schemes that apparently Calvin knows Apparently, my opponent here knows tonight, but ancient Israel, they were just too stupid, so they had to be talked to in stupid language, the language which they would be familiar with. Remember when we first came here tonight, I talked about being a good historian with a particular focus in reading comprehension. I know what a metaphor is, right? In the Bible, it says that King David's hand reaches out and touches the water, which means that his kingdom ranges all over Israel, all the way up to the borders of the water. It's not about King David's actual hand. And this is not anthropomorphic imagery about King David. This is a metaphor. Metaphors have meaning, and it's meaning that's readily apparent to the audience. And hands are pretty much associated with power. So you see hand being used throughout the Bible as a stand-in for idea of power in relation to God, in relation to men, it doesn't matter because metaphors are easily understood. But is an anthropomorphism, is that a metaphor? What does that stand for? What does it represent? What is it telling its audience? What kind of parallels do we have in other literature that's not about Yahweh that is similar to this? When I think about anthropomorphisms, I think about Puss in Boots, like, you know, the, the fable, the fairy tale. I think about Disney's cars with anthropomorphic cars walking around and talking to each other. I think about the brave little toaster with a little toaster with eyes and a mouth, and he talks and he sings. What anthropomorphisms are in the real world are framing devices for fiction. Is that what this is? Is Genesis 6 trying to communicate to Israel? Is the author of Genesis 6 trying to tell them that this event didn't actually happen? It's a fictional event. God didn't actually change his mind. That's not the driving point in the narrative. The question is, why does he communicate it in such a way that it's not obvious that what he's talking about is not true? Why is he communicating in such a way where this plot point is critical to the overall narrative without explanation of this this metaphysics? Nowhere in the text. Nowhere in the text does it suggest that we just need to discount this entire description about God. And it has to be assumed onto the text by modern-day readers who just don't like the implications of what the text suggests. We do have a parallel to this in other religions. 
Around the time of Christ, Platonism became vogue. Gods were not depicted as Zeus, reigning on high in Mount Olympus, surrounded by a pantheon of gods. And people tried to make the texts spiritual. They tried to look at Homer and they tried to reinterpret him and say, Homer didn't actually believe in these anthropomorphized gods. Instead, he believed in monotheism. And all these depictions of Apollo, that just was really symbolism for the sun. And the destruction that Apollo wrought on the enemies was just a plague in the camp. And they figure out a way to demythologize their text in order to support a more humane picture of Zeus. All right, audience, think about this. Think about the depictions of Zeus in Homer in Hesod. Was he trying to communicate monotheism? Was he trying to communicate a timeless, a perfectly simple God above all time and space? Is that what he's depicting? Spiritualizing the text? Is that, is that a uh, scholarly way to go about treating these ancient texts? Just dismissing them because we don't like the implications? Or, or I would posit, is that laughable? Is that absurd? And herein we see another problem for my opponent. He wants to engage in special pleading. Special pleading is the logical fallacy where you claim that your particular way of seeing things only applies to this certain subject and it's not exportable. When these people read the Bible and their way of treating texts about Yahweh, Yahweh's descriptions, his characteristics, they read it in such a way that it, that type of reading only applies to the Bible and it's not exportable to other ancient Near Eastern texts. What I suggest, what I suggest is that we let reading comprehension, we let historical scholarship drive our reading of the text. And our methods of interpretation, our hermeneutics, should be exportable to other texts which are not the Bible. Metaphors we see in all literature, hyperboles we see in all literature, generalizations we find in all literature, so going back to the beginning of my points, we talked about Malachi, Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, do not change. What is the context? That is very specific to the context. And the context is that Israel has yet again failed God. They keep failing God. God is perturbed. God is angry. God knows that if God was to enforce righteousness, justice, he would destroy Israel. But he's true to his promise. And this is a reiterated promise throughout the Bible God's covenant relationship with Israel. And because he's true to that, because he does not change in the fact that he's going to stay true to this covenant, he's not going to destroy them, no matter if they keep on violating this covenant. If you know any ladies who have married a guy hoping to change him, and they say, oh, I, I thought he would change, and someone says, don't you know anything? Husbands never change. Men never change. They're not talking about immutability. They're not talking about perfect perfection. Contextually, it's limited to the subject that you're talking about. And contextually, in Malachi, it's limited to what's being communicated. And there's nothing in there about negative theology. There's nothing in there about complete immutability where God can never change in any respect and is timeless and outside of time and incomprehensible. That's not found in the Bible. When my opponent quotes texts, and we'll examine them, and here's my general rule there. If we examine their first proof text after they shoot out a bunch of proof texts, and that has nothing to do with their point, you can basically dismiss all of them because their proof texting is shoddy. What they're doing is they're trying to prove that earthquakes are God clapping. 
they need to show in context how the context fits how they're trying to use the verse. If they don't do that, they're not doing biblical scholarship. They're doing spiritualism. They're doing special pleading. They're doing very poor proof texting. And my appeals tonight are going to be a very different type. I'm going to try to contextualize verses. Narratives about Yahweh, which are long, which are detailed, which have a lot of plot points. And if you're pulling out these plot points and trying to dismiss them on philosophical grounds, the stories fall apart. The stories fall apart. The stories reinforce the text that I'm going to be talking about. And hopefully I'll get a long discussion with my opponent about Exodus 32, in which Moses and God have an interaction. They have a dialogue. And this dialogue, Moses treats God as if God is angry, as if God's really going to destroy Israel. And he builds a concerted, cascading argument as to why God should not destroy Israel. And in spite of God's anger, God changes in response to Moses' prayer. And it's not because the people repent or anything like that. It's because Moses points out that God's name is going to be profaned among the pagans if he goes through with this destruction of Israel. That's what the text says. And we have to remember that all biblical text is advocacy. They're advocating for the true God as opposed to false gods that are available to Israel. So we got to ask ourselves, is this author depicting what he really believes about Yahweh or is he building a false picture of Yahweh? For what reason is he doing that? Is there any indication that he's doing that? How do we know from the text that he believes what my opponent believes about God rather than what he states? The choice is going to be obvious tonight, folks. Either you want to spiritualize the text, you want to engage in special pleading, you want to engage in emotional appeal and logical fallacy when you approach the Bible, or else you engage in historical scholarship and reading comprehension. As for myself, I endorse intellectual integrity. Let's go where the evidence brings us. All right, so that's about a 30-minute uh, opening first round. There might be a few things I'd change up in a real live debate. The debate needs to be framed as not what I believe, but what the biblical authors believed. So when they try to use their philosophy and say, look at my system and it works together, and then we impose it on the text, you say, you need to prove not to me that your philosophy works. You need to prove that the biblical authors endorsed your philosophy. And the special pleading will be obvious because there's plenty of proof texts in other ancient Near East texts about omniscience, about total uh, control of all events by like Zeus. They don't want to take those texts in that way. They wouldn't read it because that would be silly. It'd be silly to say Zeus is out to sight of time and immutable or that uh, Homer or Hesod believed that. That'd be an absolutely absurd argument. And it should be an absurd argument in relation to Yahweh as well. The Bible has zero support for these concepts. And the more that's that is pointed out, the better off you're going to be in that debate. The debate's going to be framed as a philosopher who wants to impose on the text versus reading comprehension of the text. And that's the debate I want to have. If you have any questions or comments on today's episode, feel free to send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.